Our scripture reading today comes from 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. That which is from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which is with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. We all strive for the good life. We all want happiness. I'm always moved by the image of Mottel and the scene uh, who's this poor tailor in the classic play Fiddler on the Roof. I'm moved when he asks Reb Tevye for permission to marry his daughter. And Reb Tevye at first is dismissive of Model. He pushes Model aside and says, you're only a poor tailor. Model, though, he's not dissuaded and he begins to push back and he says, yes, but even a poor tailor is entitled to some happiness. Model in this scene is fighting. He's scraping in life. He's saving to buy a sewing machine in order to have something that's good and beautiful and fulfilling in his life. A marriage. And the hope of one day having a family. Such a human picture and at a much deeper level than sewing machines or poor tailors or weddings, it's a picture I think that we can all relate to. Because we're all scraping too. We're all saving. We're all working hard towards some end that we believe will satisfy us. We're all looking for the good life. But Christ City, have we found it? This Sunday, we're beginning a new 17-week series here at Christ City Church. We'll be going through the first letter of John, 1 John. He's writing to the churches in Asia Minor, which roughly corresponds to modern-day Turkey in this letter. And in this letter, John addresses his audience with confidence and with certainty about what he calls the word of life. He writes with authority and purpose. He writes with clarity and concrete, practical instruction. Why? Well, he's writing because counterfeit life has begun to circulate in the church. He wants his readers to know what true life is and how to be certain that they had it. He writes to his readers, about what true life is and how they can be certain that they have it. John sends this letter to the Church of Asia Minor and he proclaims his gospel and he calls his readers to obedience in three areas, in the areas of doctrine and morality and relationships. And Robert Law, who was a theologian and pastor in Africa who wrote at the end of the 19th century, He called these three areas the tests of life. And they're the tests of life because it is only as we respond in belief and obedience in Christian doctrine, in Christian practice, and Christian relationships, 
that we can be certain that we have life in Jesus. This theme of life, of true, rich life, it runs like a thread throughout all of this letter. This morning, we're going to look just at the preface to John's letter in the first four verses. And in these four verses, John will set the stage for us about what this message is going to be out in his letter by declaring to wandering and often confused followers of Jesus what actually is true life and what actually is true fellowship and what actually is true joy. That's our outline this morning. True life, true fellowship, and true joy. So turn with me to our first point, true life, and we'll jump right in to 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. John writes this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which is with the Father and was made manifest to us. So John begins this language, uh, this letter rather, beginning with the language of we and our and us. He uses that language 13 times in these first four verses. Why does he do that? Well, he does it because he's writing as one of the apostles of Jesus. One of these original disciples who Jesus sent out. That's what apostle means, to be sent out. Sent out to tell the world about the life and the teaching, about the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And John writes as an eyewitness of Jesus. He's writing to churches that were being led astray by false teaching And he's writing to them with the authority of someone who has seen and touched Jesus. But we shouldn't think that John is writing just as a dispassionate witness. Not like somebody who saw a car accident, maybe a fender bender, and had to give a report to a policeman. He's not writing as that kind of witness. No, John writes as someone who is a witness who knows Jesus and loves him. Someone who felt Jesus embrace Somebody who walked beside Jesus for thousands of kilometers in his earthly life. Someone who slept beside Jesus under the open sky as they camped, making their way to the next city. Someone who laughed with and celebrated with and wept over Jesus. Someone who wept over Jesus as he stood alone with three women at the foot of the cross. Someone who witnessed Thomas touch the scars in Jesus' side. And in his hands, after he was resurrected, he writes as someone who stood on the hill as Jesus ascended into heaven to go back to his father. And now, John writes as an old man. An old man who had witnessed the results of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection at work. John witnessed the Holy Spirit come with power at Pentecost in Acts 2. He witnessed 3,000 people come to faith in Jesus after Peter's first sermon, which we also read about in Acts 2. He saw the gospel take root and grow, blossoming throughout the whole Roman world as Jesus' life went out and flourished and multiplied. See, John stands arm in arm with the apostolic community. 
but those who witnessed Jesus like he did. And he says, we proclaim to you. What does he proclaim? Surprisingly, John doesn't actually use Jesus' name in this passage when he talks about what he proclaims. Look again at verses 1 and 2 with me. John says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which is with the Father and was made manifest to us. See, John just calls Jesus life. Jesus and life are synonymous to John. But John isn't merely talking about life as opposed to death. No, he's talking about life with a capital L. He's talking about abundant, overflowing, rich, and fulfilling life. He's talking about the flourishing life that only comes by being restored into fellowship with God through Jesus, who truly came as a human being, fully God and fully man. True life, the good life that all of us long for, this is a life that John proclaims. Jesus talked a lot about this life, especially in the Gospel of John. And we read a few of the things that Jesus said about this life. I want to show you a couple of them. I want you to see what Jesus says about this life in John 10, verse 17, and also in chapter 17, verse 3, where Jesus says, I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. What is that eternal life? Jesus tells us in John 17, verse 3, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is a life that Jesus brings us, true life, in relationship with God because of his sacrifice. But John doesn't refer to this life as something that's abstract, merely philosophical or theological. John emphasized that he saw and he touched it. And this gets to the heart of some of the false teaching he was concerned about in the early church. Because already only around 60 years after Jesus ascended into heaven, people were denying that Jesus had come in the flesh. The heresy of the false teachers in the churches John was concerned about was this. I can have fellowship with God without incarnate Jesus. But John says, no. John says, this is nonsense. Because John knew Jesus. And he knew that Jesus wasn't a disembodied deity. He knew Jesus was not a mere man. Jesus was God most high. Become man who dwelled among his people, living a real historical human life, who died for our sin and reconciled us into relationship with God. And without this being true, John knew the church could not have true life. 
Now, I don't think we make quite the same sort of error that was made in the early church uh, that John was concerned about. But I think we can be guilty of removing Jesus from his in-flesh and historical setting in our own lives. For example, I know people, and I am sure you do too, who are very comfortable quoting a word or two from Jesus in order to give themselves a little spiritual boost of some kind, but who at the same time have no faith in the real historical Jesus. Or maybe who just are uncomfortable with much of what the historical Jesus actually said, and so they altered a little bit. They, they cut and paste and create a version of the historical Jesus that suits them and works for them, and who functions to boost them spiritually in some vague way. But Christ City, this isn't who Jesus is. That isn't Jesus. Because Jesus is the historical person. God who became human, who really lived and really died and ascended bodily into heaven and will come again and descend bodily to establish his rule and reign on this earth over every square inch of his creation. And only by trusting in and submitting to and loving this embodied historical Jesus who the apostles bore witness to, only that will lead to true and flourishing life. Only that will lead to the hope that is in the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And that's a bit problematic for us, isn't it? Because as professor of Boston University, Peter Kreeft once said in a discussion about C.S. Lewis, to believe in some sort of a God is fairly comfortable. It's more convenient to believe in a God who is, it's more inconvenient to believe in a God who is so specific and so particular that you can say, there he is in history. There are his words. And there are my responsibilities. I can't make it up. But Christ City, what John was eager to communicate to the first century church was that kind of Jesus. One who is real and historical and in flesh. So Christ City, here's the question for us. Who rules our lives? What Savior have we turned to? Which life are we pursuing? The real and true life that is part and parcel of being saved by the in-flesh historical Jesus of the Bible? Or are we serving a Jesus that fits our preferences and our own imaginations as we cut and paste from his word? Friends, only the real Jesus will lead us to true life. And what's significant about this is that only trusting the real historical Jesus will also lead us to true fellowship. I want you to look at our second point in verse 3 with me. John writes, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. See, John says there is a major reason why he's writing and proclaiming Jesus to the churches in Asia Minor. He tells us in this verse. Look at it again with me. He says that it's for this reason. So that, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. 
Christ City, these are the stakes of turning away from the truth in Jesus. The stakes are true fellowship with God and true fellowship with one another. It's important to note how confrontational that teaching actually is. John is saying that those who claim to have fellowship with God, but who don't have fellowship with the apostolic church, who don't believe the message of the apostles who saw and touched Jesus, those people don't actually have fellowship with God at all. Because true faith in true Christ through the true apostle, apostolic church is the only way to have fellowship with God and one another. If one link in that chain is broken, it all falls apart. But what does fellowship mean? That's a good question. Well, fellowship is union with Christ and one another through faith. Fellowship is union with Christ and one another through faith. It's what Jesus prayed for in John 17, verses 20 to 21. When he said, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through the word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. And they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This fellowship with God and one another through faith in Jesus, it's not just tea and cake. It's not just uh, intimacy of relationship, though it is that in a beautiful and rich way by the Holy Spirit. It's more than that. It also communicates labor and a common purpose. There's nothing better at growing intimacy in relationship than working together in a common purpose, especially in something that's adventurous. I love adventure. My favorite New Year's memory uh, ever happened a couple of years ago when my wife and I and our little infant son came to uh, my parents' place up in the mountains in British Columbia, out in the mountains in Mission, British Columbia, and uh, there was an incredible snowstorm. There's a huge snowstorm. I think it started snowing around four or five, and within a couple of hours, there was 14 inches of snow, and the power had gone out, and it felt really adventurous. My dad and my brothers and I realized that we couldn't get home unless we started to work on plowing the driveway. And we worked hard to to plow and to clear the very steep driveway that led down into the subdivision and then to go further still and to clear the very steep road that led up to the subdivision that was perched on this cliff. It's one of my favorite memories because it was so full of purposeful hard work, of sweat, and an adventure sort of scenario. And there's something of this sort of fellowship generally in our human experience in times of duress or hard work where you grow to depend on one another. Where you sweat together and cry together and labor together towards some common goal and it draws you richly and deeply together in relationship. It's a fellowship of first responders. It's a fellowship that's often portrayed or talked about from wartime. We're on the front line or on the home front. People are drawn together in relationship as they work hard. They need one another. They rely on one another and they labor together for a common purpose. It's true friendship that comes from these sorts of endeavors. Now, John knew this sort of intimate fellowship. Because first, it's what he had with Jesus. He had intimacy. 
and friendship. Labor, sweat, and tears toward a common purpose. And second, it's what he lived as an apostle of the early church. When you read 2 John and 3 John in particular, they reveal to us an apostle John who is rich in intimacy and friendship and love with the churches that he served. See, John was the only one of Jesus' disciples who lived to old age. And we see him in his old age serving the church and watching it grow, praying over it, laboring with them in their suffering and in their persecution, laboring so that they would come to know and mature in Jesus Christ, laboring together and growing together in maturity in Christ as a church. And all the while in this labor, in these settings, he was growing in intimacy of fellowship with the church, them with him, and them together through faith in Jesus with God Most High. You see, true Christian fellowship is union with God and one another through faith in Jesus as we are united in a common purpose. So here's a question. Christ City, do you long for better and deeper fellowship? Do you long for rich and true friendship? You know, the late theologian John Stott, he wrote about this verse. He said, this fellowship is a rebuke to much of our modern evangelism and church life. We cannot be content with a church life whose principle of cohesion is a superficial social camaraderie instead of a spiritual fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So how is your fellowship? How is it actually going in your life? Are you living for the common purpose that Jesus gave us as a church? Are you united together as a church as you are seeking his glory? Or are you still living for your own glory? Christ City, we're a network of neighborhood churches that seek to fulfill the Great Commission by making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. So because you know Jesus, are you reaching out in love and relationship and friendship with one another? Because you know Jesus, are you reaching out in love and relationship and friendship to those who don't yet know Christ? Are you increasing in true fellowship? One of the ways you can grow in Christian fellowship is by becoming a covenant member of this church if you haven't done that yet. By becoming a covenant member of this church, what you're doing is saying, I am committing in fellowship, in relationship, and in common mission with these people for the glory of God in our city. I want to invite you to move away from the peripheries of relationship to this church and move closer to the center of our common mission together. As you do that, you will grow in the fellowship that John speaks about. Now, true fellowship with God and one another through the incarnate Jesus is fundamentally related to our third point, which is true joy. Look at our third and shortest point from 1 John chapter 1, verse 4, where John says, And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. We're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Isn't that interesting? John says he's writing these things not so that your joy will be complete, but that our joy may be complete. Why is that? Why would writing these sorts of things about true flourishing life and Jesus lead to the joy of the apostles being complete? 
Let me try and show you through an illustration. Growing up, there's a family that was intimately related to my family. They had the same number of kids, approximately the same ages, and we were close. I used to call their mom and dad, mom and dad, in fact, I still do. And I thought of them as my siblings. But as the years have gone by, I've watched my friend's parents suffer incredible pain. Because two from that family have turned so far away from Jesus that their lives now are in utter shambles. They're homeless, and their lives are controlled by terrible addictions. What their parents do constantly, when they're with us, when they're with their Bible study group, they're praying for the salvation of these kids, now men. And for them, there would be no joy comparable with the joy of seeing those two men come to faith in Jesus. The joy of seeing them know the richness of fellowship with God and with their parents, with the church, as they live in faith in Jesus. Christ City, I know you can relate to this because I know that there are people in your life that you long would be saved, that you long would experience the joy of rich fellowship together with Jesus, with you. You see, John writes to these churches so that the joy of the apostolic community would be complete. He writes because he's worried this church, these churches have begun to consider a counterfeit life that will only pull them away from Jesus. He writes because nothing would be more joyful for him than an increase in richness of fellowship, united in love and faith and common uh, purpose together in Jesus. He writes to them because he longs that they would experience more of the overflowing, abundant, capital L life of Jesus who came in flesh in real human history, established his kingdom, and gave us a mission to labor together in. So Christ City, in conclusion, we are longing for full and rich and meaningful lives, aren't we? I think we are. But you need to be pursuing it. The life you long for is right in front of you. This letter is for us, whether you are a Christian already or whether you aren't. This letter is for us to show us the way of life to call us into repentance so that we would walk more fully in the life that is in Jesus and Jesus alone. Christ City, that life begins with repentance. It begins with you looking right now at your life and considering, where do I need to stop the direction that I'm going and turn away from those things and turn towards Jesus? Where do I need to begin agreeing with him and his word and stop fighting him and his word? Where do I need to align myself with the teaching of the apostolic community that we see in Scripture? Christ, the life God offers you in Jesus is rich and it's full of joy, but it's not for the faint of heart. It's an adventure. It's full of blood and sweat. And if you've been walking with Jesus for any amount of time, you know that it is full of many tears. But it leads deeper and deeper into life that is truly life.
as you fellowship with God and one another through union with the incarnate Jesus, laboring for the same common purpose, the glory of Christ filled with joy. So Christ City, would you pray with me? Father, we come before you. And we are full of anticipation to learn more from your word. To become more confident of the life that we have in Jesus. For those of us that don't yet know that life, we come asking that you would begin to reveal it to us and lead us to repentance and faith. Father, I pray that you would be glorified in this church as we join together in unity of fellowship and labor for a common purpose, the glory of Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you're part of a house church, now is the time to go prepare the wine and the juice and the bread and get ready for the communion celebration. Maybe take this time to think about the way that Jesus Christ offers true, flourishing, and abundant life as you partake together.